kickstart this latest series of podcast episodes, I have the pleasure of chatting to a very well-known figure in the equine vet world, Professor Derek Nottenbelt. Just to add authenticity to the occasion of a mum's vet podcast, my own kids are currently rampaging around upstairs, refusing to go to bed. So please excuse any hollering. I should say that no child has been left unattended in the making of this podcast. Their babysitter, otherwise known as Dad, is actually upstairs trying to persuade them that sleep isn't all that bad. And to add further to the authenticity, they've also given me the latest kid, Cold. Back to uh, Derek. Derek is going to be talking about his experiences of trying to combine being a vet and a dad. I recently had the good fortune to encounter one of Derek's daughters, Claire, who is herself a small animal vet. And I decided to ask Claire and Derek if they would be prepared to talk to Mum's vet together. They've both agreed, so here we are. And I'm sure that anyone listening is very well aware of Derek Nottenbelt, the extremely dynamic and well-accomplished vet, but Derek's thoughts on parenting may be less well-known. Well, a few years ago, when I was pregnant with my first child, I asked Derek for advice on the safe handling of the Liverpool sarcoid cream in pregnancy. The response I got was most unexpected. The email reply couldn't have been more effusive in congratulating me. Well done, Derek said. This is the best thing any human being can do. What great news. So Derek, I'd like to uh, to start tonight, but to begin by asking what led you to feel that way about people? And by people, I guess I'm really meaning female equine vets. Um, what made you be so effusive in your congratulating me and those around me to become parents? Yes, well, unfortunately, uh, fortunately, um, we're all here because somebody's had a baby. And, uh, and I think we, we need to be each one of us grateful for that, no matter how sticky the birth was or whatever, which wasn't painful for me at all, of course. And uh, <laughs> childbirth was a doddle for me. I, actually, I did get a, I, I did fall over in the bar that morning and hit my head against the wall, uh, and and I went to see Morna, my wife, with little baby Claire, aged a few hours, and said, "This childbirth thing is very painful, you know. If you feel my head here where there's a little bruise." I said it was, it's it's definitely sore. Of course, she wasn't that amused by that. Uh, nevertheless, from that moment onwards, it, uh, being a parent, it, it suddenly thrusts you into a world of total responsibility, but also amazing experience that goes on so far for a number of years. I won't reveal Claire's age <laughs> because that's not a gentlemanly thing to do. But um, it, that parenting thing goes on for the rest of your life and uh, and you know although of course inevitably there are ups and downs uh, in everybody's lives with difficulties and uh, so on and i had my share of difficulties as well um I, I was in a very busy practice um running off my feet and uh it was i was a partner at the time and it just got heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier for me and it was a very very difficult time I was working up to 18 hours a day for seven days a week. And I suddenly realized I didn't even know who my children were. I had no idea who they were. I hardly knew my wife either. And, uh, and then I realized, you know, this is wrong. This is actually completely wrong. And our priorities have to be towards our own families. The profession is a great profession, but it's a very consuming profession. It eats, eats away inside you not only because you need the money to survive and everybody wants more and more, of course, whether you need it or no, but much more importantly, it eats away from, uh, at you for, from a professional reason. You know, we all want to be vets. We 
do the best we can. We all want to be recognized. And as such, it, it becomes an all-encompassing, all-driving uh, profession. And, and I think it's something the profession really needs to look at very seriously indeed. So I packed up at that point. I said, I've had enough of practice, and I walked out uh, and, uh, and took a completely different line into academic life, first in Zimbabwe, where, where I came from, just because it was lovely to get my children and family out to Zimbabwe in the sunshine, away from the pressures of this kind of frenetic practice life. Don't misunderstand me. Practice was fantastic fun for me. I, you know, I did get, I had a lot of injuries and in the usual way of dealing with horses and cattle and dogs. But at the same time, it was amazingly challenging. It was very fulfilling. But there's another side to life, and that has to be the most important one of all, and that is parenthood and and looking after your family, making sure that they are recognized, making sure that you know who they are, making sure that you know what your children are doing, make sure that you give them the support. Don't miss the school sports day. Don't miss the performance on the stage in a, in a play or, a, or a, 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 an event of some description or a child playing a musical instrument. You can't miss that. Your children will remember the missing of it and they will respect your attendance. So overall, I think the profession needs to take a very different perspective on the work-life balance and particularly on parenthood as more and more ladies are becoming vets themselves. Now the demographics have changed completely. In my day, there was, I think there were four girls in my year at, at college, one of whom became my wife. So uh, I had a lot of competition um, uh, and uh, had to fight my corner there a little bitty. But, but nonetheless, um, I look back on that and think to myself, you know, the demographics between then and now are so totally different. It's better, in my opinion, than it ever was before, but it's different. And unless the profession changes to recognize that demographic change and allow people to have a better work-life balance, then the profession is always going to be um, full of people with you know, I didn't say psychological hang-ups, but, but, you know, potential nervous breakdowns, potential breakdowns in relationships and so on, not only with your spouse, of course, but also with your children. And I think that is incredibly harmful. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of food for thought there, Derek. I've actually just been jotting down a couple of things when um, whilst you were speaking. Um, and it's one of the, one of the last, last of things you just said that uh, stuck out. And I guess the first thing I'm asking, slightly from a personal point of view, because I'm a female equine vet married to another vet. And I, I guess what I'd like to know is, did your wife stay as a vet after those children arrived? Uh, I mean, obviously she stayed as a vet, but did she stay as a, a working vet? Well, well, um, she, 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 had, she faced a lot of problems because in those days, the opportunities for part-time work was almost non-existent. And, but actually, I think she enjoyed parenthood enormously. She got a lot out of it and she put a lot into it for looking after the children. She gave them every opportunity to do the things that 
they wanted to do, like writing, like playing musical instruments, like doing the ballet and all sorts of other things that the, that the kids did. And they really flourished under that. But of course, whilst this was all going on, Mona was actually um, out of the profession. She, she maintained her Royal College, of course, and, and did a few locums here and there. But actually, in my practice, I there was a problem because when I went into the practice, it was it was thought that and promised, I suppose, in a sort of practice kind of way, that she would be employed there eventually. But actually, there was a aggravation at the time in our area in the Midlands where some lady had been had been employed and there had been aggravation and somebody had become pregnant shortly afterwards and all the aggravation that went with that and senior partners in the whole of our area suddenly realized that they didn't want to employ a woman at all. So Mona had a lot of trouble with that. And so she opted to back out of it. She opted to back out and look after the children. And she was out of the profession. I'm not sure it was whether it was 12 or 15 years or something like that, and then wanted to go back. And of course, that's a huge step. So she had to go back and relearn all the things that you know, she had learned at college, which now had been sort of dumbed out of her, I suppose, in a way, because she was entertaining herself with all sorts of other things, you know. Uh, and uh, and so ultimately, she did get back into practice. She went on and became a, a dermatologist. She did her certificate. In those days, it was very hard to do a certificate out of practice, but she did it and she completed the certificate and then went back into part-time practice because now, there was a better recognition of that. However, even then, she was always dedicated toward just making sure that the children had everything that was available to them. And by then, I was now of the same mind. And so our children were given every single opportunity that they wanted within reason. Um, uh, and, uh, and we gave them what I believe to be a good invested investment in the future in terms of their educational experience. And that's why I've got two amazing daughters, a vet who's gone ahead and become a specialist herself uh, and uh, and a top of the range ballet dancing daughter, which is a very diametrically opposite situation. So that tells me that we did something right. In the end, we did. I think what, <laughs> I think what that tells me, Derek, is that, yeah, that you, Obviously, everyone got it right because um, Claire clearly wasn't put off being a vet by um, watching what was happening around her. And um, your other daughter really um, <laughs> took note of the ballet lessons that Mom had got her to. So, yeah, Claire, you, you, you never, you never, did, you know, you didn't get put off being a vet. Uh, one of, just before you answer that, one of the things Derek told us when he came to do some surgery at our practice was how he regularly used to have daughters um, in surgery with him um, back in the day, <laughs> helping out, um, which is, you know, something that I, I could still do when I was um, a work experience child, but I don't think it would happen now. But I think it's fantastic that you went on to become a vet. And did you ever have any doubts about that, Claire? Um, well, I'm probably completely different from everyone on the planet <laughs> in the... Um... <laughs> I I basically I, I spent most of my life being told by mum and dad don't be a vet don't be a vet um, and uh, got to kind of heading towards my A levels and I was like what am I going to do 
what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. So I trawled through a lot of university prospectuses and I was obviously, I was doing sciences. So that narrowed the field down a little bit. And then one day I just thought, mm, maybe a vet degree is the one to do actually. <laughs> so I would have got in with that now um, because I think you have to have done so much kind of dedicated work towards becoming a vet. So I kind of more stumbled on it than had a grand plan. Um, yeah, and that's really, that's definitely the the way my career's generally gone. It's been more of a kind of stumbling towards things and accidentally ending up as a professor, really. So. <laughs> 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 that's one of the things I say to students actually they you know they say to me how how did you end up in this route and I always laugh and say I never would have dreamed that I was going to be an equine vet certainly at university it was not my bag um I said but actually I said what you enjoy as a student might be very different from what you enjoy as a vet I said um the thing you find once you graduate uh you know you meet someone you have kids is life uh you know, you, you have to build your job around the life. Um, it's not as simple anymore as what do I want to do? And what's the grand plan? So, yeah, I think I'd, um, I'd echo that. That's certainly what I've done. It's a kind of, well, this is what, I, you know, this is what I need to do. And it's interesting, something Derek, you said a minute ago, um, a few years ago, my, my brother runs a small business, nothing to do with being a vet, but he always used to really moan about employing sort of 30 odd, 30 year old odd women um, that they were going to have babies and then disappear. A few years on and he's totally changed his tune because what he's saying is actually they're the women to employ because he said you, you know you get them through maternity leave you get them back and they want to stay in an area you know they want to get their kids into school so actually they work very hard and they're very loyal um i don't know whether you two have got any comments on that well yes i mean i, I personally i absolutely agree i think that you know people who I just go back to the same statement I made initially. You know, we're all here because somebody's had a baby and the person who denies that, however they deny it, you know, has to be at extreme fault because they don't realise that, you know, they were a baby once and thank goodness they got born. And, you know, and I think that's always going to be the issue. So whenever, you know, somebody has their children and they want them to succeed, then you have to have a job with stability and you have to have a profession. And our profession is the most amazing profession because you can get stimulation from any component of it, however shallow uh, uh, participation you may want to take. So if you work part-time, you can get an enormous kick out of it. I know lots of people who work part-time and, and they enjoy every minute of it. They're glad to go away and glad to draw down the shutter. And that's one of the things that, Claire is very good at, you know, at the end of the day, she put, pulls the shutter down at work and goes home and does the the thing the children have, the grandchildren now have to do. And they, she's doing the same. She's taking them out to their vaulting and their riding and their instruments and so on and so forth. And they've had all that same opportunity. But that means that you have to be able to have the time. Now, obviously, if you're on duty um, and you've got you know, a, a carving to do, or you've got to examine a mare for, for uh, ovulation um, at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, and that's the time your daughter is going to run in the 1,500 metres, or your son is going to run in the 1,500 metres at the school and get the biggest cup of all, for which he's been training for months. What are you going to do? Are you going to go and say, 
well, the mayor can be dealt with by anybody else with any sort of competence whatsoever. And I've got lots of him, of my assistants and so on that I've that I've employed um, and I've trained, and I, they, I'm, they're all competent. They can go and do it. Or are you going to say, "Hang on a minute, this is my important client. I'm going to look after the client and forget my family." And that is a dreadful mistake. It's something that will haunt the parent for the rest of their lives because the children will remember that. And I don't blame my children for remembering that I wasn't there at some of their events. And in retrospect, it was a hideous thing to do. They, we have to support our grandchildren and our children simply because that's where the future lies. The future doesn't lie in, a, in the ovulation of a, of, a, of a thoroughbred man, no matter how valuable she is. The future lies in the the children and the grandchildren and the next generation and the next generation and what kind of profession are we going to hand over to them? Are we going to hand over a profession that causes people aggravation to the point of suicide? Or are we going to hand them over a profession which is tolerant, universally tolerant of diversity of work ethic, diversity of all the things that go with diversity in modern society. Are we going to accept all that and just say our profession is a rainbow profession? It's a fantastic profession with stimulation from dawn to dusk, if you want it. And, and, but you should be able to turn the radio off, turn the car radio on playing music, turn the, the, the mobile phone off and go to see the cinema or take the children to the fairground or go to see their sports day or to go see something that gives you social time. And that's the one thing that parents forget nowadays. They, they sacrifice everything on the altar of professional development and increasing financial income. And that, in a way, I can understand the financial income because everybody wants to be richer than they are. But it's a question of do you want a gold coffin when you die or do you just want a happy family and a nice set of children who are going to be there on the day you die and wave you goodbye? I, I know which I'd have. It's um, it's quite amazing to hear all of that, Derek. Um, almost makes me quite emotional, actually. And it's something that I'm wondering at what point um, in your career or how old the children were when you sort of realized all of that because I you know I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and I know how much over the last five years I have if I'm completely honest it's always been putting work first and it hasn't it's not so much about putting work first because that's what you want to do it's because it's what you think you should do and I I can honestly say it has never been anything to do with financial gain mm. it's all been to do with guilt or a sort of confusion over you know what you should do how you should do it you know, not wanting to piss off any of your colleagues. Um, and, mm. yeah, I, I did make the first school sports day the other week. I had a <laughs> wonderful chest infection, but I did. And I did race. Uh, I only came second in the mother's race. Yeah, well, I... Me, but, <laughs> but I was there, yeah. but but I haven't been there a lot. And it, it's how how do we, as a, you know, how do we stop people feeling guilty? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, it's always going to be a problem. And uh, mine was a light bulb moment, I'm afraid. And I'd worked, I remember the weekend, absolutely. Uh, I'd worked like hell all weekend. I was up all day and all night. I used to do all my own lab work at night. So it would go often go on till, you know, 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning. And then, of course, you'd have to be out at 7 and the kids were there. And on a Sunday morning, I was there and I woke up in bed and there were three ladies in my bed. 
<laughs> there was my wife, who I didn't know who the hell she was anyway. There were my two children, who had no idea who these people were. I can't remember. I think Claire was probably 10 or so. Or I can't remember when we left uh, when we left practice. I can't remember when that was 1984 or something. When, however, however old Claire was 14, actually. Now I come to think of it. Uh, and, and, and Julie was 12. And, and, you know, I realized I didn't know who they were. I had no idea. And, and I thought, something's wrong here. And it was a light bulb moment. And, and I think I, I look back on that and I think to myself, if people use that as an example and, and how unacceptable my behavior was up to that point. It was totally and utterly unacceptable from a family perspective. All right, I had, a, I had enough money and I sent them to private school and I could do all that. Actually, did it make a difference? Well, maybe they were better educated than they might have been, but did it make a difference in any other respect? Probably not. So so the, the, the likelihood is that we were able still to turn the clock back by making a radical decision to change my life completely, absolutely completely, within a matter of a month. It was just shut off and go, and that was it. And uh, so, as you can imagine, you know, I I was senior partner in the practice, I, and I just thought, no, I've had enough. I'm just not going to do this anymore. And uh, so everything had to change, you see. So absolutely everything. Their schooling had to change. We went out to Africa. We had to find schools for them. We had to do all this. If I look back on it and say, was any of that a mistake? Well, the only mistake was that we didn't do it sooner. What I find fascinating um, for me about this, Derek, is I, I mean, I'm now yeah, mid-30s, and the only Derek Nottenbelt I've known has been, I guess, the, the Derek Nottenbelt in academia. And the one thing I can honestly say is it doesn't sound like you've been slacking since you left practice. So what I think is a real boost to me sitting here tonight is then okay so you made that decision you went off and you you know obviously felt like you did then spend a lot more time with your family and I would say looking from the outsider it looked like your career then took off so yeah how yeah. how did you all manage it yeah well I mean you know Claire Claire will remember I'm sure she will remember the day we packed up and in, in you know when when we were here and we went off out to Zimbabwe again she'll remember that of course it meant that she knew her 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 parent, her, her, her father's father, her grandfather on my side. Um, she'd known my mother before she died, and so you know everything welded together a sort of wider family remit. So of course, you know that was okay. That was because my family was very split between UK and and Zimbabwe or South Africa anyway, and uh, so you know it was. It was easier for us to do that, I have to agree, because there were good things that happened. There were bad things that happened subsequently. You know, it wasn't it wasn't my flavor of the month because the people in that in where I was at university were very intolerant and and really were full of the same kind of people that I'd left. <laughs> and uh, they didn't understand what the life needed to be. And so Subsequently, I came back and fortunately I went to Liverpool where I had Barry Edwards, who was a workaholic beyond belief. He was a workaholic beyond belief. And he and I became very good. We'd been friends for years, but we became, became very close friends. And we would chat every almost every day uh, about our families and so forth and so forth. And I realized that he had never got out of that. He'd never got out of it like I had. 
you know, he was still on the same treadmill that he'd been on all his life. And again, you know, he had two fantastic children, Gareth and Ellen, and they're, and they're just, and they're amazing people to this day. I know them. And, uh, and, but I think by their own admission, you know, they didn't see enough of their dad. And I was resolved I would never, ever fall into that position again. Of course, now I, you know, I still shove off to go on horsepower for a fortnight every year and I do this and do that. So I do that in the context. But, you know, we are in touch regularly where we see each other regularly, both my daughters and my grandchildren. We see them as often as we absolutely do. The family is the issue. If the family is not intact and supported, life is not worth living. Believe me, it's not, and it's wrong. It's morally wrong, it's socially wrong, and it's professionally wrong. So one of the uh, the other Mums Vote Committee members um, emailed me this week, Derek, when I said that we were going to be chatting, and she was a resident when you were at Leehurst, and she said she vividly remembers um, that she would often see your wife and your daughters, um, and she said it was all you know they would come in to sort of pin you down on domestic matters was the quote, um, and she said it would be very interesting to hear um, any sort of advice he can now give to the sort of you know the younger dads coming through, um, and one of the things she said which you've sort of picked up on there was how over the last probably at least decade um, at least staying in contact with that parent who is absent has got a lot. Uh, interestingly she said easier because you know we've got FaceTime we've got Skype we've got got mobile phones now I it's you know I actually find it quite difficult so I have a husband who works away in the week and I find it harder when we do try to FaceTime because I find the kids get more distressed um but I don't know I mean I you know Claire would it would it have been easier if you could pick up mobile phones if you could FaceTime you know looking back over the years or I don't know what do you both think Um and that sort of staying yeah I, I it's a really interesting one i mean dad, dad's recollection is, is correct during the week but i have very clear recollections of on a sunday we'd spend a lot of family time together um and when he wasn't on duty obviously when he was on call uh there was an expectation that my mum would answer the phone that was the expectation in those days um we answered the phone sometimes you know as well for dad and is when he's call so we were very much trapped in the house when he was on call because there was that expectation that you would answer the phone so you had to be quite close by having a mobile phone makes a big difference to that sort of tie um I really that the the sort of contact you need with your dad and the sort of contact we gained when we moved out to Zimbabwe is something really simple you know a, a really clear recollection I have was um fixing the car and my dad and I would work on fixing bits of the car and, you know, doing those kind of jobs around the house, those little bitty things that, that happen, bringing in logs down from, we used to live in a woodland for a while and bringing logs in and clearing nettles and doing doing stuff together was more, for me, was more important than necessarily kind of sitting down and having a chat about how your day's been and I feel that with my children as well you know I've just been away for the last last week abroad and you know I phoned my one daughter who was at home every day and the conversations were not that great you know she was busy with her thing and I wanted to tell her about my thing but actually when we get the best conversations is maybe when we're sitting in the car going out to go and see the pony riding and you know, we have a chat and things come up and it's it's a, a much deeper relationship when you just have that 
physical being in the same space as your child, I think. And I see it with uh, my dad, with my children, you know, that because they live quite close now, and that's been an absolute life transformer for me as a working parent, I, I love seeing just the easy relationship that my girls have with dad um you know they'll they always he always asks for a hug when they come in and you know they sort of say oh grandpa yeah and grandpa takes them out to the garden and they go and they do stuff together and it might be the mundane stuff like you know digging up some potatoes from the potato patch but it's just that easy relationship rather than that kind of forced social relationship that we we sort of value these days is the sort of chat and the the social media and all this actually what you really want is just that easy quiet time spent together even if it's just sat watching the telly together you know it's that easy easy time I think is so so important yeah I've just found that absolutely brilliant tip um and it is so true there's a, a greetings card I often see with a, a picture of a sort of harassed woman on the front and the speech bubble goes along the lines of oh my god I just opened my mouth and my mother came out and <laughs> When I was when I was picking my son up from school the other day, and I was you know so so what have you done today? And I got my head bitten off, and I tried again, and I thought, oh my god, I just opened my mouth and my mother came out because I used to hate it when she did that to me, and you know like like Claire, I was working away last week, and I thought it'd be a great idea to FaceTime the kids. It's a awful idea. Two-year-old toddler tried to kiss the phone, hug the phone, scream. There was a fight, and you know grandparents turned the phone off and messaged me to say you know don't do that again um and it's so true because actually what what really we had a nice time doing was yesterday they helped me clean the car and it was easy so i think that's that's a really good one to sort of share with everybody actually is you know stop trying so hard and actually spend some time together yeah, i think i think that's that's a, that's the the pinnacle of the whole thing is this willingness to spend quality time and it's a question of how you measure the quality. Now, everyone has a different kind of quality, but you actually have to be very honest about it. So your quality time has to be genuinely honest, not just a, a glossy paint over the surface, you know, a paper bag over everything that's troublesome inside. So I think uh, it, it has to be genuine time. And, and you know, I, I well remember things that we've done together, you know, long walks and, you know, digging the potatoes and doing this and driving the truck up and down the lawn, even though Katie drives in circles rather than straight lines. You know, it's, it's, um, it just, it's, it, it makes life amusing, you know, and, and entertaining because actually if your life becomes so serious that you can't see a joke, see a likeness in every, anything you do, then your life is wrong. You know, there has to be, lightness in everybody's life otherwise it just becomes overbearing it becomes more and more and more serious and every single decision you make becomes a inverted commas perceived anyway life-changing decision and, and and yet it's trivial you know should i put the bins out today or should i wait till tomorrow morning you know now suddenly tuned up on some, about something that's completely and utterly irrelevant so you know that's the the, the relaxation time that you need. You need that with your children and it needs to be absolutely internally honest. Ask yourself, was that a good day or not? And throughout my life, every single day, not many people know this, but every single day of my life, I always ask myself on my way home, just in my own mind, how did you get on today? 
you know? And then I, I say, well, that was a pretty awful day. I made a mistake. I made plenty of mistakes. Don't worry about that. Um, uh, and I made a mistake and I did this badly and this and this and this. And if I say that to myself, I say to myself, well, you'll have to do better tomorrow. And then I try better tomorrow. On the other hand, if I say, no, it's been a great day. And then, uh, and then I, I don't, I used to stop in at the pub and have a beer, but, but I go home now and I'm better for it. So, but that's just the admission of your daily um, uh, quality of life, I suppose. And if you do that, if as a family member, you know, you say, how did I get on? You just lie, you know, going to bed at night, just before you go to sleep, just say, in your mind, I, how did I get on today? Did I do right by my family first? Did I right, do right by my pets and so on, my animals second? Did I do right by my profession third? It's not the other way around. It's not the other way around. It can't be. If it is, then you're doing something wrong. Okay, if you're single and on your own, that's fine. You do whatever you like. But where you have responsibility, you have to take the responsibility and you have to keep a, an element of lightness about it. You have to you have to have a, a froth. You have to be champagne. You know, you have to have the bulk of the fluid of your life. And then you have to have the bubbles that make your nose tingle. You know, that's the best thing. Yeah. I'm laughing because I think I sort of managed to tick all of those boxes in one go on a uh, Monday evening. I uh, got home and I got um, dragged by my children um, unwillingly, but actually it did turn out very nicely to watch. Um, fortunately, I think both of you will not have had to suffer this because Derek, your children are definitely too old and Claire, I think your children are too old, but I had to watch this um, awful cartoon called Paw Patrol. Um, <laughs> and I had this, you know, the five-year-old, he doesn't actually speak when he now comes in from school until he's had his sort of fix. And the, but the two-year-old was just so excited that I would come on the sofa and, you know, sit there and, and watch Paw Patrol. And I slowly started to think, do you know what? It's a terrible, terrible cartoon, but she has got the biggest grin on her face. And then the cat jumped on my lap and I realised that the two-year-old had mitts and the cat had fleas. So in that moment, I thought, I'm a really sh parent because we're sat here watching Paw Patrol. I'm a vet because a cat has got more flea in than I've ever seen on any cat and the toddler still has nits. And then I just started to laugh at myself. <laughs> so, yeah. Just please tell me everyone has that sort of five minutes. No, no, we, 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 we all have that. And, and the important point is to see the humour of it. A friend of mine, Dave Mullins, died of cancer, uh, bowel cancer some years ago and he wrote a poem just before he died and sent it to me and, and even in respect of cancer, he said, cancer can be rather fun if you approach the tumour with a certain sense of humour. Yeah, cancer. He was a, a, an amazing guy and, and he died shortly after that. And, uh, and this whole poem is just all about that. You know, he said, pausing on my homeward way twixt Bombay, Joburg and Bombay, I called to see my doctor, now my friend, to peer into my hinder end. And because he had bowel cancer. Oh, wow. And and so the poem goes on and, and this is this extra little bit at the end, you know, and, and he 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 could see a humor in it. And life is better with with humor than it is with endless diatribe of you know, anger, hate, selfishness, all the things that we hopefully teach our children um are wrong. But but actually, when we look at our own lives, we suddenly see, oh, hang on a minute, you know, 
I'm being very selfish about this, or I'm not doing this correctly, or I'm not doing that correctly, because I, I'm not considering the wider issue, you know, and, uh, and we're not considering our family. Remember, your family is first. Your family is absolutely first. That is the overriding thing. And if it affects your family adversely, you need to change your life. It's as simple as that. And then secondly, it's your own animals and your own things around you that matter next. The, li the live things, animals in particular, your dog and your cat, like you, you've got a flea-bitten cat, that's fine. <laughs> Anything about fleas and cats, but anyway. Um, and, then, and then, of course, you have your profession after that. And that also needs to be treated with a degree of humor and, and, and a, a, a lightness that makes life better. And when I think back on the clients that I've known and made the best relationship with when I was in practice, it was all those people who joked with me and I joked back, you know, oh, veterinaries come along with a new car. I'm, I'm not paying you this month because, you know, I'm not paying for your new car, you know, and so on and so forth. And I would just rib them. I would give them back exactly what they got. And did they go to some other vet? Absolutely not. You know, I had the most faithful, absolutely the most faithful clients, both small animal, farm animal and horses that any person could ever have had. Uh, but they also recognized that I would give them everything, everything I could. And that was where I started to misplace myself. I started to move towards profession rather than family. And that bias needs to be shifted back in the modern profession to family a, 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 with a professional background and if that is the case then we will succeed as a profession that that kind of brings me on to um i guess what probably ought to be the the final question here is um lots of people got very excited when they knew that um you'd agreed to have a chat about parenting derek and the overriding sort of uh, question people wanted me to put to you was you know what 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 are your recommendations like how do we plan as a profession for this future where we have got more mothers we've got you know we've got more mothers who want to work uh we've got mothers who want to take time off and come back to work as a vet um how you know any tips or any thoughts on, on how we improve that and you know and that's also bringing you in there claire because you're you know you're very much one of those vet mothers um so any, any thoughts? Well, I'll, I'll be brief with mine if I can. I haven't been very brief so far, as you probably noticed, but, but there's an interesting challenge answering that question because the, the, the profession has changed. Point one, there's no question. This is a completely different profession from the one I entered. Two, the profession has become very much more demanding of people. The profession has become more pressurized on people and therefore... The, the bias has been more towards profession and less towards a tolerance of family life and quality of life. We've got a lot more ladies in the profession, and thank God for that, frankly. Um, uh, I think it's done the profession the world of good. Uh, but at the same time, because of that, the biological facts of life are that I can't have a baby. Well, I can try to, but it doesn't seem... Uh, and uh, and and we we've got to tolerate that circumstance. And when we look back on our lives, we should be able to say, my mum and dad, or my dad, in the, if you're taking it as a veterinary dad, my dad was good for my life. And if that's the, if the child can say that, then the father has done the right thing. The fact is that the 
modern world doesn't really allow that. So the profession needs to change. The profession needs to have a lighter approach to this, a more tolerant approach to it, a more diverse approach to it, instead of becoming more and more fixated on more and more money and more and more intensity of professional um, capability. And I would like to see the profession go back a little bit. I'm not saying that I want them to go back to the bad old days when, you know, we would hope to spay a cat in one minute, 30 seconds. And, and you know, we would just snuff them a bit of safan and get on with the job. You know, nowadays we'd, we've got a much higher level of professional behavior. But within that, we should be able to establish a quality of life for the people who are in it. Because if we take out women from our profession, we're doomed. Full stop. You know, we're, we're doomed. And I'm re really concerned by the rate of attrition uh, within the profession. Now, I know there are a lot of figures bandied about, and I'm not going to go into that now. But at the same time, I think uh, a profession that does not provide enough support to their members to keep them in the profession and keep them actively engaged in the profession is making a mistake and is doing something wrong. And I think we've just got to readdress this, try to allow people to have flexibility, try to put a sense of humor back into our profession and lightness, a bit of a James Herriot, if you will, uh, you know, to have a, a lightness and a lightheartedness about what we do, albeit it's a very serious profession with a serious professional behavior pattern and ethic. But it's got to be lighter than the matter of absolute life and death for every single animal we deal with and every single creature on the earth. It's just not like that. If we, do, if we lose the James Herriot bit, I think we all do the profession a disservice, I think. Claire, over to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to share, obviously, my experience of being both having babies and therefore taking maternity leave and um, being at the other end where my colleagues have taken maternity leave. And I think my tip for working mums is... Do you know what? We all need to start working together a little bit better. And how do we do that? We start to appreciate that when we take maternity leave, that is our absolute entitlement. We shouldn't feel any guilt about it. We need to get on with it and enjoy that time that we have. You know, I see so many women petrified of telling their boss that they're pregnant, petrified of saying, well, actually, I want to take the full year off. And yeah, I will be taking my holidays after that. Um, and also I'm seeing it from the other perspective, which is where I have had to carry the workload for someone else on maternity leave. And I realized when I was doing that, that what I needed from the management, if you like, was not them telling me that it was all fine and you know everything was fine. And of course we're fine and we can manage. You're managing fine, aren't you? You're managing fine. What I wanted was a little bit of feedback along the lines of Claire, thank you so much for carrying the extra burden while this person's on maternity leave. We couldn't have done it without you. We're so grateful and we know it's been tough, but thank you. And I would have then said, yeah, well, you know, she had to carry the burden for me when I was on maternity leave. And I think as women in the profession, we need to work together. We need to start to say, you've got school sports day on Friday. I'll cover for you. You go, you take that couple of hours, get to your school sports day. And in return, when it's my daughter's sports day, I'm going to tell you and you're going to cover for me. And it's it's a much more 
relationship based thing. And I think that's what I've come to realize through my career is that as women, we are very proud of not asking for help. We're very good at saying, uh uh-uh, uh, I can do this. I can get my shit together. I can just bob out and do this and I'll get my husband to do that and it'll all be fine. And I'm I'm awesome. I can do all my work and my children will be fine and they can live without me at sports day. You know, they won't even notice that I'm not there. It's all great. We need to stop and go, right, who can help me here? Is there someone in the practice who can help cover so that I can do those things? Can I ask my friends in the area I live around to maybe help in some way so that I can go and do a CPD event that I really need to do? Is there someone who can help look after the children? And I look after them and there's a return. And I think we need to become more collaborative as women in the profession. I think we're so used to fighting a battle to prove ourselves equal to men. We're like, we're equal to men. We can work long hours. We can do all of this stuff. The men need to start acting more like us and also saying, hang on a minute, I need some time off to go to my kids' sports day today. And then the women go, okay, yeah, we, we accept that. We know what that's like. And so we get a lot more collaboration within the profession. And I think once we have that, things will be easier. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that last bit is, is so true. It's it's the mums and the dads. And, you know, I as I said right at the start of this this evening, I, I need to stop viewing the husband as the as a babysitter you know it's more you know we need to see our you know the dads as fellow parents not not the babysitter yeah definitely i think parenting parenting is an equal responsibility and i think that that's never been the case historically you know men have always gone out to work and women have always stayed at home that is the de facto victorian up to you know up to the to the millennium probably just about um, that was the de facto position, but it. But parenting needs to be more equalised. But I would like to see again. I think Claire's exactly right. You know, a sharing. Uh, you know, a, a better, light-hearted approach to everything, a more tolerant approach to everything. To understand that you know, when your children are vomiting, and you know, you've got three children, and they're all vomiting one morning. You know, you've got a problem in your house. You know, and employers need to understand that. And although the law is very strong, it's not only the law, the adherence to the law, it's also the 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 realization by the employer that this is a difficult position for their employee. You know, and and one day they'll be in the same position. There will be something that they have to ask for help from. And you know, this is the kind of thing where we are very intolerant, uh, unfortunately. And we need to become more tolerant. We have to understand that life is once you have one chance and it has to be shared and it has to be enjoyed. If your life is not enjoyable, pack up and do something else, you know, sell ice creams on Bondi Beach if you must, but do whatever you want. But but for goodness sake, enjoy your life. If you don't do that, it's a waste of time. Uh, I think that's a... Um... A, a brilliant point for us to end on um, tonight and I want to say a huge thank you to you both um, I'm hoping that we can get this podcast out and get a lot of these messages that you've both been um, saying out to as many people parents employers employees as possible um, and I'm sure we'll we'll be talking again about yeah about parenting vetting and, and everything associated thank you very much Rebecca thanks Rebecca Thank you very much.